Evening, Hope Church. Do I spit when I preach or something? What's with the... <laughs> Thank you, Vic. <laughs> What's with the, the empty few rows? Reuben's keen, though. He'll get, a, he'll get a lot. Can you open up with me to Colossians chapter 3, please? Uh, pleasure to see you. If I uh, have not had the, the uh, joy of meeting you and chatting with you before, please do make sure you um, uh, take some time and come and say good day, especially if you're a new Christian or not a Christian and you're seeking uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation, would love to have that conversation with you. We are, we're going uh, through the book of Colossians and we're getting towards the end and we find ourselves where it really just hits the ground in very applicable ways today. We're going to be reading from verse 18 in chapter 3 until verse 1 in chapter 4. The Christian religion is a totalizing religion, a totalizing religion. By that we mean that there is no, there is no area of our life, there's no uh, category, there, there's no uh, a pigeonhole, there's no shelf in our life, there's no part of anything we believe or the way that the world works that the Christian religion does not speak to. The Bible speaks to every element of all human behavior, society, and existence, and it speaks to it with all authority. Christianity is a totalizing religion. When it comes to you, it needs to take a grip on all of your life. And that is because Christ's lordship is a totalizing lordship. There's no arena that he is not lord over, whether people choose to accept it or not. You actually don't have to bend the knee to Christ for him to be lord. That's kind of what it means to be lord. He's already lord. He is the one true God who became uh, a man, who became joined to human flesh. He is the one sacrifice sent from heaven that died for our sin. He's the only one, the only religious leader that ever claimed to be God in flesh. He's the only one, the only religious leader that ever came back from the dead and proved everything he ever said. He's the only one that still to this day is shaking and making waves of influence through history and society like nobody else is. Jesus is the one true God. Amen? He's the one true Savior. And because of that, God has set him, his Father has set him on a throne in heaven, which is symbolic language of saying that he's got all authority. He is the Lord. And, and if you're not a Christian, the, the Christian message to you is not... Come to Jesus and he's got some money for you. Come to Jesus and he's got some blessings for you and he'll help you get through life. He'll help you reach your goals, make your sports team, get the job, the best that you want. The, the gospel to non the message to non-Christians is not that. The message is that though you don't realize it and even though you may hate it, Jesus is the king. He is your creator. That's what we've learned in Colossians. He is the true God. We heard that in chapter one. He is going to be the one before whom you are judged. When you die, you'll be brought into his presence. He'll judge you. Have you lived according to God's laws or not? Have you been perfect or not? Are you righteous or are you a sinner? And if you are found to be a sinner, which every person will be, and you did not place your faith in Christ for forgiveness, you'll be judged according to your sin. So he's the one true living God who now reigns over all things. And, and then the other thing that is totalizing, the lordship of Christ reaches to everything, which means that when you become a Christian, the new creation within you, the new spirit, the new heart that you have, the new creature that you are, what we called last week, the new self, that is changed in every element. 
the way you think, the way you feel, the way you desire, the way you act, the way you speak, and the way you relate to people, all of that comes now under the Lordship of Christ. It's, there's new emotions, there's new affections, there's, there's new desires and actions. Every part of us has changed. And so we say all of that to say that when we come to this point in Colossians chapter 3 in the beginning of 4, some people might sort, of, might sort of sit back and feel like, what right does Paul have? What right does this preacher up on stage have to tell me how to live in my relationship with my wife or my husband and my kids or my parents and my employment between me and, and those under me? What right does this guy have, this, this first century Jewish fella and, and this uh, 21st century Aussie fellow up here? What right do we have? Well, I have no rights. Paul has no right in and of himself. The reality is that we speak on behalf of the word because it is, it is so totalizing, because it is the words of the one true living king and God. He demands authority. He demands obedience, even in the nitty-gritty of our life. And as we look at it, we'll realize that these relationships in our marriage and our family and our employment, they may be nitty-gritty, but they're not irrelevant. They're not, they're not just some tangential part of our life. These really, when you get these four relationships right, you realize that this actually affects all of my life. And Jesus claims such authority over us. So, so look at verse 18. From there down to chapter 4, verse 1, what we're going to see is, I said four, but there's going to be three. Three lots of relationships. First, the relationship between wife and husband then the relationship between father and children or, or parents and children, and then the relationship between employers and employees in their day, masters and slaves. And Paul writes this way. This is what back in the ancient world was called a household code. It was a pretty common way for religious leaders and teachers to, to speak to their disciples was to, uh, was to sort of land the plane and say, here's how each section of the home needs to behave. And in those, those ancient homes, it wouldn't just be the, the parents and the children and the pets. In their world, the household included much of the employees, the, the servants, the slaves, some of the, the cousins that are in from out of town, the, the other uh, younger couples who are renting a room. It would be a, quite a large, multi-generational uh, 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 type, of, type of household. And it's into that household that that Paul now speaks. So, so hear what he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 and onwards. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not, not by way of eye service, as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. For those who are willing to swallow that pill, will you with me uh, uh, pray to God that he would bless his inerrant word in our midst this evening? Amen. Amen. 
Well, it's no doubt that these things are very politically incorrect and Paul didn't really give a, give a sharp mind to what would be a, a, a politically correct in our day when he penned these letters because, like me, he doesn't care. He's going to say the truth of God as it lands in our life because that is what important, is important for us. As we, as we look at what God says about the Christian home, it is important to remember what C.T. Studd said. He was a missionary an English cricketer who became a missionary, and he said to hopeful missionaries, young people at a Christian conference who who wanted to go and change the world for Jesus, because they had this this all-encompassing vision for the gospel of Jesus, he said to them, remember, the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest back at home. If you want to be a light that can shine to the nations and shine across the globe, remember that if you are that kind of light, I'll be able to walk right back to your home and see you shining the brightest. No time for world-changing, city-transforming, culturally-engaging Christianity if it doesn't change the way you parent, the way you treat your parents, the way you, you treat your husband or you treat your wife or the way you work in your employment. These things must be done in relationship to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, look at this. The, the, these relationships that he talks about, wives and husbands, children and parents, and employees and employers, they are relationships that are built in a God-given way on a hierarchy of authority. There's authority embedded by God into those relationships, and it's good. Furthermore, Paul's going to recognize two ways that authority structures can go wrong. When things go wrong, they can go wrong in the right direction, like driving 180 kilometers down the highway. That's doing the wrong thing in the right direction. Or things can go wrong in the wrong direction. And that would be like driving perfectly to the speed limit on the wrong side of the highway. Okay? This version over here, going in the right direction but doing the wrong thing, would be a, a lording, abusive husband, father, and employer. And going in the right, in, sorry, in the wrong direction, no matter how it's done, would be something like a woman being the head over her husband, the children being the functional bosses of the home, and the employees controlling what their bosses do through their complaining and their insubordination. God's structures of hierarchy or authority are good God-given things. Husbands are submitted to by their wives. Children obey their parents. Employees obey their employers. That does not mean that as long as that lordship is being done, it's being done well. It can be overdone or it can be undone. We can break the law by going on the wrong way of the highway or we can break the law by going the right way but too harsh and too fast. And therefore, Paul limits the lordship or the sovereignty or the authority of men in the home. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Remember that if Paul's talking to a man, he's likely talking to somebody who has all of these roles. He will likely be a husband and a father and a servant or slave owner or employer. It's not an immoral thing necessarily, it's just the reality. So when he speaks to masters, he's not just talking to a separate group, he's still talking to the same men in the households. And he says to them, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. He limits the lordship of, 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 and, the, and the, the authority of these men by reminding them you're under authority. 
There is a lordship you have in the home. There is a lordship over you and over your home that you must remember. In this section, uh, there is nine uses of the Greek word kurios, which means lord. It's translated as masters and as lord. It's, It's said nine times, and it's only ever spoken about of Jesus Christ. He never says that the the fathers or the husbands are a lord, which would have been normal in their day. He actually uses the word lord to a strange frequency in so few, few verses because he's making the point, there is a lord, it's Jesus. Submit to him. The only people he calls lord, as we read in 4 verse 1, is the master, the slave owner, and that's only a literary device so that he can say, hey, you masters, you have a master. So in other words, before we get into it, we have to recognize that Paul is affirming the goodness of structural hierarchies of authority in the home and employment, but he is limiting those things by the lordship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can move on to verse 18 and begin our exposition. Look at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. This is the first relationship between wives and husbands, and the first person addressed is the wife. The idea of submission means means a voluntary subjection of self to to the will and leadership or lordship or authority and care of a man. Now, it's important as we, before we go on, some people can get, like we said, too heavy on this and say a woman, obviously, has no authority at any point in her life over herself or her life. And that's manifestly untrue. Not only, as we'll see, does the father not have absolute authority over his daughter, nor a husband absolute authority over his wife, yet even if, and we will, we say things from the Bible that is very politically incorrect tonight about the submission of wives to husbands, even then... The woman, before she enters into a marriage, has all the authority about who she marries. Therefore, she's not subjected unwillingly to a man, but rather is, it is only ever a valid Christian marriage if she voluntarily, willingly agrees to submit to that man. Therefore, she has all the authority about whom she will submit to. She doesn't get to choose her father, but she does get to choose her husband. That, that's very important to remember. And then from there, we realize uh, this is how I'm defining submission in a Christian sense, wife to a husband. That with joy, you volunteer all of your help and your respect to a man and his mission as he serves Jesus. You use all of your respect and you muster all of your help to submit to a man and support him as he serves Jesus. That's, that's what we mean. And I'm not going to qualify it a whole bunch more than that because that's what the Bible says. And it is fairly against, uh, against the, the culture that we live in today. But what the Bible will teach us is that an insubordinate wife who's rude to her husband, who's nitpicking, who's tearing him down on the basis of his flaws, who's divisive in how she manages the home, who complains about her husband in front of her friends or to the children, who mocks him and derides him, who is controlling the atmosphere of the home with her powerful emotions, who is complaining or demeaning of him, who mocks him or grates under her own household responsibilities, who despises the home, and yes, who neglects his relational and sexual needs. All of these things, Titus tells us, is a bad witness to the gospel. Titus chapter 2, verse 4 and 6 says, 
that the older women should train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Let's just, gals, let's just take a little talk over to the side here. You can, you can amen the fact that Paul just said it's a fact that sometimes we have to be trained to love our husbands. Amen somebody. Sometimes it does not come very, don't, don't amen it. We're taking your names. Uh, uh, <laughs> sometimes it does not come naturally. It is not a joy. It is not something erupting up out of your heart. It is a God-given grace that there's some older gals in the church who have uh, learned how to honor men that are less than perfectly honorable and respect men that are less than perfectly respectable, and they can help disciple you into that Christ-honoring, husband-honoring submission. Let's just say that. The women need to be trained how to do this because it does not come naturally to any of us. In verse 5, and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. The reputation of the word of the Lord, which is the gospel, the truth about God in the world, that's on, that's on the cards when, when women consider how they treat their families and especially their husbands. Secondly, Proverbs tells us in chapter 12, verse 4, that the way that, that an insubordinate wife in, that I was describing before weakens her husband internally. And you say, what, physically? Through her cooking? Or emotionally? Or spiritually? Or, or, or mentally? Well, which way does he weaken her? Does she weaken him? And the answer is yes, in every way. Look at what Proverbs 12, verse 4 says An excellent wife is the crown to her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. What a deep and profound proverb. Number three, an a wife that does not submit joyfully robs the home of its joy. Proverbs 21 verse 19. I swear to you, this is in the Bible. You can fact check me. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Don't amen it. Just don't amen it. Husbands, earn yourself the brownie points and do not amen that. But he's saying... If you were to throw away your sun, your, your sunblock, your, what do we call it as Australian? Sunscreen. If you were to throw away your shade, throw away your hat, go up in, in just a pair of pants and, and camp without a roof on top of, just you in a sleeping bag, on top of a hot tin roof all summer long, baking your, you know, grilling your, your eggs out on the roof, it's that hot, that is more enjoyable. That is like a sip a cold sip of drink compared to living with a quarrelsome and fretful wife. I'm just the messenger. Fourthly, it tears down the home, which Christ has called the wife to build up. Of course, not physically. She doesn't build the building, but she builds the life-giving part of the building. She makes a house into a home. She builds it to be a garden for young souls and, and for her husband. The Proverbs 14 verse 1 says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. These are the effects of a wife that does not listen to Paul here in verse 18 and does not submit to the Lord. She is, she is simply, as verse 18 says here, she's doing that which is not fitting to the Lord. It is inappropriate for those who claim Christ. It's not living in light of the Lordship of Christ. It has not put on the new self. The woman in Christ needs to put on the new self that honors and submits to her husband. And of course, there are, there are limits. There's not the kind of limits that, that basically rule out all of our life and say, yeah, I know he says submit, but 99% of my life is lived in the exception. No, no, it's not. It's rather the other way around. 
but there are limits. There are not limits to your desires. There's not limits because you don't like it. The limits are because your husband's authority is limited. That's all. So where subordination or submission to a husband's wishes and his direction and his leadership, where that becomes sin because of his, what he's asking you to do or asking you to uh, uh, put up with or what he is doing to you, where that submission becomes sin, wives ought not go along. That too, doing so, that also would be fitting in the Lord to not submit to sinful demands. Therefore, young women, engaged women, Choose very wisely with a multitude of wise older Christians around you, being your counselors. Choose very wisely who you say yes to in marriage. Do not, do not fill your minds with Disney propaganda and romance novels so that whoever asks, as long as he's got two legs and makes at least 100 bucks a year, whoever asks, I'll say yes, dad will pay for something, we'll have a white dress, beautiful day, who knows about the rest. Look past the wedding. You are choosing a man for yourself that you are willingly and voluntarily having to submit yourself to until you stop breathing. That is the call for young women. Think wisely about who you allow to pursue you. And then husbands. He speaks to husbands, not not willing to leave them alone. He says in verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Isn't it weird that you have to be told that? And we do. Do not be harsh with them. What a straight, like, we, we, might, we might back up here and just, just wonder, like, do, do, does, a, does a Christian man really have to be told to love his wife? Like, yeah. Yeah, what Paul is doing is, is speaking and commanding to our weaknesses. It's natural for guys to honor and respect and not insult. You know, you know wives sometimes say, why don't you love me? And he'll say, I've never called you a name. I, I honor you as my equal, you know. And she goes, that's just not what I, that's not what I mean right? Don't salute me. That's weird. Buy me flowers. Buy you what? Get over it, love. I give you food, don't I? Uh, Men are less naturally affectionate, generally, and women are more naturally affectionate. So it wouldn't have rustled any feathers if Paul had said, hey, husbands, honor your wives. Hey, wives, love your husbands. That comes pretty naturally. He's aiming to our weaknesses and saying, men, love her. Women, submit to him. These things do not come naturally. So with joy, with a voluntary, dutiful affection, love your wife and think hard to all of her needs, just like Jesus does for the church. This is a responsibility of the lordship in the home under Christ so that men who take up the the baton of lordship in the home and do not take up the responsibility of love in the home are acting as tyrants because they're taking authority without the responsibility. They're saying no to the loving part and therefore trying to usurp who is ultimately lord in the home, which is Christ. So we must lord and we must love. We must lord lovingly and love as a lord. A brutish, arrogant, angry, harsh, hard, dictating husband is not living under the lordship of Christ. A man who is quick to criticize, quick to complain, quick to point out error and weakness, quick to blame, quick to anger, is not living his husbandly life under the lordship of Christ. A man who is slow to compliment his wife, 
If you, have, if you asked her tonight, and I dare you, when's the last time I gave you a heart-melting compliment and she has to think hard about it, mark it up as a failure. Be, be complimenting her frequently. A man who is slow to compliment, slow to thank, slow to honour, both in public and in private, this man who is frequently agitated and easily annoyed, who dares to even threaten his wife or lays his hand on her in an ungentle way, these men have no right to call themselves a disciple of Jesus, who is the loving husband of all husbands. It has not, that man has not put on the new self. And he puts some feet on this. He says, love them and don't be harsh with them. Love is more than just an affectionate feeling. It must come across in our interaction. He says, don't be harsh. I've made a list here called how to be a harsh husband. I don't have to tell you, do the opposite. This is just to make it easy. How to be a harsh husband. First of all, being harsh means, I think the key way to be harsh is to demand of her things without giving her the resources to do it. There's an old saying of this. Uh, you might have heard it. It's called uh, bricks without straw. It goes all the way back to 1,500 years before the coming of Christ when the Egyptians, and especially the Pharaoh, was abusing the Jewish slaves. And one of the ways he abused them was he said, keep on making the same amount of bricks, the same amount of produce, the same amount of buildings, do the same output, and I'm going to give you less resources to build your bricks with. I'll take away one of the important ingredients, which was straw. Same output, less resources. That's harshness. That's, abu- that's mean even for a slave trader, right? That is what harshness is in the husband-wife relationship. Here's what it looks like. Independent, uh, require of her, right? Demand of her that she independently manage the household and children while you also demand that she works full-time to provide that double income. Or demanding that she respects you and honor you while you act like a boy and require her to mother you. Or wanting her to be spiritually mature while failing to take your family regularly to church, teach them at home, and lead her spiritually. That's bricks without straw. It is expecting love and affection in the bedroom with little to no romance, adoration, and affection outside of the bedroom. That's, that's bricks without straw and a whole lot of other stuff. Wanting a loving wife to love you the way you like to be loved without loving her in such a way as to take concern for her emotions, her mental health, her concerns, her feelings. These are harsh ways of dealing with your wife, and she should, rather than those, be the object of your care and concern as you value her as your helper and your companion, the greatest gift given to you in this life outside of eternal life itself. That's how men should do so. Now, husbands and wives, neither party now should rack up all the failures of the other party, all right? You don't, you don't know to list out all the ways your husband or wife has failed you. Take them home a, a sticky note or maybe a big scroll of their failures and show them what they need to improve at and then sit back and wait for them to do so. Rather, we see that Paul spoke to each party. Wives, listen to what he said to you and implement them with as much honor as you can and just watch your husband change. 
Husbands, go home and instead of demanding that she submit to you, you honor her, love her as you ought to without harshness and just watch the way that she can't help but honor and respect such a loving Lord in the home. That's how wives and husbands ought to treat one another. And then we we move next to verse 20, where we see Paul go to the second lot of relationships, parents and children, or he just says fathers and children. Because ultimately, the mother's authority is the father's authority delegated to the mother. She carries his authority. Therefore, they are equal towards the children, but the delegation comes from whom she submits to. So verse 20, he says, children, obey. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Christian children should seek to please the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are tempted to believe that I can honor Jesus while stuffing it to my parents. And he says, no, honor your parents, obey them in everything, because they were given to you by Jesus. They were given to you by Jesus to look after you, honor them. And the authority that they're wielding is, in fact, his authority applied in the home. They are carrying his authority. And it pleases Jesus when you obey them and when you honor them. So if you want to be a Jesus-honoring Christian child, honor your parents. Parents are given to children until such a time as they are mature and independent in themselves to be their own uh, 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 managers. Until that time, they should be looked after, guided, held responsible from their parents. It pleases God that way. God has designed family to be the forging furnace of everything that society needs in its people. God has designed family to be the forging furnace of everything that society needs of its people. Love of neighbor, respect of private property, respect of authority, all of that makes for a tremendous society and citizen. And those things are the very things learned in the home, and there's no alternative to it. That is why we see when families and homes and parenting split break up, become abusive or neglectful, especially on a wide scale, it's just a generation away before we see societal breakdown, collapse, and chaos. Because God has designed the family to forge future future citizens. And so to the young people, God is saying to you, trust me on this. I've designed it this way. Honor your parents. Obey them in everything. That is pleasing to him. And then he looks at the fathers, verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So men, we've, we've discussed how we need to treat our wives. Now he's coming at us about how we need to treat our children. He says, do not provoke them lest they become discouraged. This, this language could sort of come out as, as resentful, as bitter. You know, our, we're in, a, in our day, I, I think it's probably every generation, the older guys and the, 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 the fathers, the, uh, they're, they're, they're apt to sort of look at the younger generation, often the teenagers, and say things like, these are resentful, these broken, these stuffed up, these, these are, are thankless, entitled teenagers and young adults dancing on the screen to their flick flock and putting it on the, the, the two page, whatever it is, uh, their social media, they don't know how to work. Uh, who did this? You know, it's the world today. It's the internet. It's the government. It's the, I don't know, 
It's something else. Look at what out there has happened to these children and get angry about it. You know what Paul does? He says, men, this is your fault. Who raised these kids or who failed to raise them? Now, you're not responsible for other people's kids, of course, but he speaks generation to generation. We should actually realize that where they should have learned their honor, their work ethic, their identity, their respect, where they should have learned that was in the home. We can't look at our kids, especially our own kids, and say, who taught them this? You know, these resentful, these provoked, these bitter kids. Look in the mirror and realize, fathers, it is actually on us, this weighty task of raising children rightly. Of course, alongside our wonderful wives who are their mothers. A provoked, resentful teenager is our job to avoid. But uh, uh, while other factors no doubt contribute, the ultimate deciding factor is the fathering they receive. That is no doubt spoken to us by the Proverbs. That is no doubt reiterated in the Scriptures and repeated by every sociological study that has ever been done. Fathering is the key deciding factor to how children turn out. He says, otherwise they will become discouraged. In other words, it could mean that they lose all their motivation is the basic meaning. Fathers, you need to realize this. If you leave your children in this world, which is a very tough world, and it's them and their sinful nature, without your teaching without your biblical guidance, without your discipline, without your patience and your prayer and your godly example, without your heart-to-heart conversations, if you leave them in this tough world, without that, you are setting them up for a discouraging, disheartening lack of motivation in life. You're setting them up to fail and feel like losers who can't even gain victory over their flesh, who can't pursue a woman, who don't know how to hold down a job, who don't know how to be responsible. It is up to us. They will have to find their own purpose. Who knows where they'll get that from? At best, Jordan Peterson, and that sucks. They'll have to find their own wisdom, and who knows who they'll glean that from, the guys on the street. They'll have to follow their own passions, and that'll only lead them down the gutter of sin. They'll have to find their own sense of belonging because they've lost the family sense of identity. We want to be men who are raising up men with a family, civil, church identity built on the Lordship of Christ. It's, it's one of my goals, one of the way that I, ways that I think. I want to raise my sons to be Ford boys or Ford men that my great-grandfathers would be proud to be carrying their name. That's how I try and think about it. I want to raise my sons respectfully, my daughters if God gives them to me, respectfully and honorably in such a way that they are rightly carrying the legacy passed down to me by those who fought in wars, built, 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 built families and, and bought land, stuff like that. I, I want to see and I want us to see the legacy that is entrusted to fathers. Do not provoke them. Do not dishearten them, but invest in them. Don't, don't see them as the distraction from your job and the higher income. Don't see them as the distraction from your investments and the holiday home and the jet ski and the next ute that you want to buy. Put more value and time into them than you put into your football teams, into your cars, and into your your dream home combined. Invest in them. They are your future. Love them. Pray with them. Teach them the Bible the best that you can. Teach them how to sing and then put all those three things together and call it family worship, where the family gets around a table 
prays, reads the Bible, and sings together. Train them in that. Model an exemplary Christian marriage to your children. Your daughters will want a man like you show them. Your sons will want a wife like you mothers show them. And show them the importance of regular, week-in, week-out church attendance. On this matter, your words matter very little. They will follow what you do. So do not provoke them, but rather raise them up. And then thirdly, the, the third relationship here is slaves and masters. Now, now we could go into a take a whole, whole half a sermon and sort of explain the, the difference between chattel slavery and, and biblical slavery or Roman slavery and the different elements of it compared to, to the, the man-stealing slavery. We just don't have the time. Listen to me say this. No doubt there are many people in the church of Colossae or every other church in the Roman world, as Paul writes to them, some of them acquired slaves legally and they're basically servants. They acquired slaves illegally and they were stolen slaves or they were purchased in the marketplace. I'm not going to try and uh, pretty up any of that history. The reality is that those people living in those homes. Paul doesn't come in and say, revolution, revolution, slaves, break the chains, Christian masters, throw away the workers. Rather, what he does is simply speak to the hearts of the people and say, slaves, live like Jesus. Slave masters, Treat them like you're treating Jesus and act like Jesus in your relationships. And within a few short centuries, slavery was not to be seen because the hearts changed society and society changed the laws and the practices. That's, that's pretty easy to see. So Paul here, in these very early days of the church, does not turn the Roman Empire on its head by demanding all Christians try and, try and upend the, 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 the systemic structure that was slavery. Rather, he tells them how to behave one to another. So look at verse 20, 22. Slaves... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In order to be able to apply this, we need to think about whether there's a kind of a modern day equivalent of this. Now, now th th there really would be. I think if, if we thought of like the, the farmhand, the butler, the doorman, the kitchen maid, all of that stuff, the, the house servant, so that's probably the, the closest equivalence we're going to find to, to how the, the, the practice would have been from early Roman slavery. But let's be very honest about our own class and economical status. None of us have farmhands and maids and butlers unless we have very obedient children, but we don't call them that. <coughs> really, I think the only functional application that we're going to find in our world to this is the relationship between workers and employers. Students and their, and their uh, 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 apprentices and their trainers, things like that. Uh, an employment contract kind of deal, which no doubt is different, but the principles apply. He says here, not by way of eye service as people pleases. So Christians should be the best husbands, the best wives, the best children, the best fathers out of anybody out there if we are learning how to put on the new self. If we put on the character of Christ, we will see that shine through in every one of our areas of life, every one of our relationships, and it will apply to our working. And let's be honest, you've got it pretty much made for you. If you're a young Christian today, you're in the workforce, it is pretty easy to be the best employee. 
Just don't call in sick every second day. Don't rock up drunk. Don't gossip and try and sleep with people in the office. Don't steal stuff from the till. You're pretty much in the top 2% at that point. It's pretty easy to do these days to be a good, faithful, dutiful employee. Absolutely. The work is just right there to be done. But the point here is that we should not be working hard by way of eye service. This means we're not on our phone scrolling and scrolling up until the boss walks around the corner and then we're, we're up on our feet and working hard. We're not using company time to scroll on the internet and write our resume for our new job or do internet shopping for Christmas. We're not using company time that the company has rightly and justly purchased off of us. They've purchased eight hours of me a day. I need to give them the best eight hours I can give in order to be an integrous Christian worker. It means that tradies are doing a job that not just gets the invoice paid and out you go, but that does the best for the client as possible. This is a reality of integrity, not people-pleasing, not for eye service. I heard it said by a, a wise Christian when I first entered the workforce. He said, Tom, work as if at every moment your boss is right next to you. That made a very large difference on how I worked. At every moment, I just thought, integrity is acting as hard without him here as if he was here. That was, that was a good piece of wisdom, but we need to crank it up a step. Because rather than just acting as if my boss was in the room, I actually need to work as if Jesus was in the room because he's my ultimate Lord. And then actually, that's too low. You actually need to crank it up from there again and say, not as if Jesus was in the room. I need to act in my work, in such a way that realizes Jesus is in the room. He is watching every single thing I do. This is, this is not a helpful little placard. This is a reality. He is your Lord. That's why he says, working wholeheartedly as for the Lord and not for men. Sincerity of heart works as if Jesus is with you at every moment because, friends, he is. We might be tempted to think, well, you know, he says don't please people, but people are the people that pay my wage, make my tip, and manage my promotions, right? I, I kind of need to live a life of people pleasing or I'll, I'll stay at the bottom rung. And, and this is where the unique Christian reality of God's sovereignty in the world applies to us. We say, I don't actually need to be seen doing every one of my, my hardworking acts Jesus sees it and is very able to bless me, not just in the life to come, but also in this life. You need to have a, have a conviction, Christian worker and employee. You need to have a conviction that Jesus can manage your, your promotions as he sees fit. That Jesus will honor and bless you for hard work done as he promises in Psalm 128, verse 2. Speaking of the man that, that fears the Lord... You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. In Proverbs 12, verse 11, he says, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The hand of the diligent will rule, verse 24, but the slothful will be put to forced labor. This needs to be our conviction. I work hard because it's honoring to Jesus, and he watches and can bless me and give me help at any point. He is the ultimate Lord over my employment. And he ends here, look with me at uh, verse, <clears throat> verse 20, the end of verse 24, that last sentence. Verse 24 and verse 25, he says, 
you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Think what he said there about the evildoer, right? You serve Christ and the evildoer will be paid back. I think that he was speaking through the employees to the employers. He's telling the Christian CEOs, the Christian managers, the Christian employers, your Christian employees don't ultimately serve you, they serve Christ. And if you mistreat them, which was no doubt common practice in Paul's day, you mistreat them, Christ will give you what you deserve for that. Back off, gentle hands, give them, as he says in verse 1, justice and equity, or treat them justly and fairly. You have a lot of authority as an employer. Even in our day of unions and limited authority, not everyone's this this Lord CEO that can do whatever they want, sure. But still, there's a lot of authority that is carried there. You can control whether people are happy to wake up in the morning and come to work or whether they hate their life. And a large large sway is a boss who manages the culture of the workplace. You have a large say on their mental health. You have a large say on whether or not they are treated justly and fairly, which does apply to fair income and wages. You have a large say and control about whether or not these these Christians see their families uh, fairly enough, whether you abuse them in the the ways that you get them to work too long or without decent pay or all, all things like that. There is a command here, treat them justly and fairly because you have a master in heaven. And has not your master in heaven treated you kindly and treated you nicely and graciously in his salvation? In other words, Christian employers need to remember this. You are in subjection to to the Lord Jesus. And as chapter 3 verse 1 told us, if you've been raised with him, then put your mind to him. If you have been raised with him, then dress yourself like him and be a Lord like Jesus is a Lord. Yes, a Lord. Yes, true authority. But bathed with grace, filled with mercy. Yes, training young guys to do the job well. Yes, looking after the job getting done right, yet with grace and mercy. As every single one of us Christians can attest that our Lord and Master Jesus is gracious with our failings and our weakness. The Lordship of Christ, as we started out, applies to every element of our life. And also his authority, being supreme, has all authority to command and invite and demand all those who are outside of him to come to him now. You who are still in your sins, you've never been changed by Jesus, you don't know what is meant by a new birth, you're not the new self, you're still the old creation, same person that was born, living in your sin, calling it freedom and autonomy, having your own fun, leading your life to hell. You know what you're like? Like the man who jumped off a cliff and said to himself, I've never hit the bottom, I doubt I will. I've never hit the bottom before. I've never met anybody who hit the bottom. Never, never read a book by somebody who hit the bottom. I'm sure I'm safe. Sinners who are outside of Jesus are in a free fall. And the only comfort is that you're not dead yet. And that is no comfort. Because you will die. Jesus will judge. And you will go to hell. Flee rather to Jesus Christ. Receive his mercy and his grace. And then just watch the way he changes every element of your life. But get the order right. Faith first. Faith even though you're a sinner. Faith now. The good works will come later. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for the word that comes through Paul. We appreciate and understand how 
how naturally everything that we're commanded to do in Scripture goes against our hearts, goes against our wills, goes against our, our natural inclinations. So we pray, Lord God, that if it were up to us according to our, how good of a wife we are, how submissive we are, how good of a husband we are and how loving we are, how good of a child we are, how obedient we are, how good of a parent we are, how good of an employer or employee that we are. Every one of us is condemned by the standard here. We pray, Lord God, that, that we would relate to you not on the basis of what we've done or can do, but on the basis of what Jesus is and what he has done for us in the gospel, that he died for us and rose, us, rose for us. That is our only basis of relating to you. Father God, I also pray that you would enable us to live out this law in these very practical ways that we would not try and throw it away in the, in the irrelevant or in the distant past or in the, 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 the historical context. But no, Lord, we would see this as your timeless wisdom in how we parent, in how we are husbands and wives, in how we live in the workplace. Lord God, would you infuse Christ-likeness to every area of our life so that we can give you the glory that you deserve as Lord over all things. Would you save people tonight, Lord God? Would you give to them the acknowledgement that they are sinners, that in Jesus there is grace, that only in him can they have forgiveness, and it is available right now to anybody who asks for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, we pray in his name, and therefore we pray with confidence. And everybody said, amen.